SCP-6765 The Demon Ogier and the Bleeding Throne of Maladraug Part 2 A common theme among SCP stories is that of things existing in the dark and the consequences of them coming into the light. In SCP-6765, the Foundation has uncovered a veritable treasure trove of knowledge and experiences from the ancient past, and is now bringing them into the light. There is a deeper darkness in this tower, however, one that shouldn't be uncovered, and one that could have very dire consequences if it is. The Foundation finds themselves knee-deep in blood and memories, but may find more than they bargain for. Let's continue. We pick up where we left off, after the reading of a number of historical accounts from various Davites, as well as Ogier, thanks to the power of the blood pool and the throne. Sometime after, Director Malthus and Fullweiler got onto another conference call with Director Lancaster, in order to inform her of a situation brewing that they need to resolve as quickly as possible. There's an issue with Relevine, as he's been struggling recently. Dream states are often being lost midway through, or so disorganized as to be incomprehensible. They've tried to get Relevine to address this directly, but he's gone silent on the issue, with not even Ogier or Javert being able to coax a response from him. Due to his physiology being so alien to humans, they have no idea of how his health is, but Fullweiler has a theory. Fullweiler admits that it's purely speculation, as he doesn't want to pretend to understand how hundred thousand year old Davite alchemical technology works, but the throne is ultimately a machine, used to catch memories. The Davites, however they accomplished it, learned how to store memory in blood. Most of what the throne does is preserve that memory, but it is the aperture, while Relevine's body acts like a filter, catching the transient memories as they pass through. They've tested the blood inside of the machine over and over again, and noted no significant difference in it, but it's likely that there's some metaphysical component to the process, something they can't easily measure. As for what Fullweiler is proposing, he says that they'll need Ogier's help here, as Relevine seems more at ease with him, and perhaps if they find the right line of questioning, they can lead Relevine to the answer they're looking for without coming at it so directly. Time is of the essence here though, and if the throne works like he believes it works, and Relevine is the filter, they might not have much to do here if the filter becomes clogged. Lancaster asks if they believe Ogier will be willing to help with this, which Fullweiler says without a doubt, so Lancaster tells them to do what they need to do. We're given another dream journal entry then, written by Agent Evelyn Ivy, featuring interaction between herself, Ogier, and Relevine. It reads, I awake into the twilight of Ogier's dream, and he stands near me appearing as he often does in our dreams. He greets me, but looks uncertain. Grim tidings, he says. Something sour lurks in the heart of this place. 
Something we have disturbed, perchance, or something rotten that was waiting to open up. What do you feel here? I ask him. He pauses. A shift. I have often communed with Lord Relevine in my many years of residence within his sacred halls. A great many things I have learned here, and through this learning I have grown closer towards the truth of a Sem's lingering presence in this world. But now, when I go to my Lord Relevine, I see only shifting patterns, red and black, something sick, and behind it, somewhere, is my friend. I will show you. He turns from me, and I see now that we are standing in a wide field. I see mountains in the distance, and dark clouds forming overhead. Behind me, I see the glittering lights of Maladraug's vein. The ground rumbles beneath me. Rain begins to fall as the sun sets, and in the distance I hear the roar of water crashing against the mountainside. There is a shock as the earth beneath me begins to split. Through the din, I hear Ogier speak. His voice is quiet, as if he is praying. Relevine, Lord of Memory, long have you dreamed idly atop Maladraug's sullen throne. I bid ye awaken, if you would. The world grows still. The rumbling subsides until it is little more than a hum, and then it too goes quiet. The colors of twilight, brilliant just moments ago, fade to black and gray. Water hangs in the air around us, the first spray of an apocalypse postponed. There is silence. Then I feel it. An uncertainty, something gnawing in my chest. I feel anxiety rising inside me, an animal's reaction to a primal fear. The hairs on my arms stand on end and sweat beads on my forehead. I look to Ogier and see him desperately gripping his arm. His body has begun to contort, cracking and breaking at the seams as red flesh and meat push through the sinew and shatter his bones. He cries out, and as the agony leaves his lips, I see a face forming alongside his, blank and unmoving with sunken alabaster eyes. He writhes there for a moment more, and it is then that I notice another figure standing nearby, a body hanging limply in the air, suspended as if in water. I look towards it, and I feel my chest tighten. It is Relevine, but not as I have seen them before. Their long hairs frayed and twisted, their visage blistered and pained. The scars across their chest are torn open, and from them seeps blood, black and oozing. And in the blood I see faces, screaming faces in the throes of their suffering. Relevine's body shudders, and I feel the ancient fear creep into me again. From all around, I hear their voice. Saint Ogier, they speak, their voice barely a hoarse whisper. You ought not to have come. 
I would have desired to have you not see me in this state. Ogier heaves his massive, horrible body towards the floating Relevine, his voice choked. My lord Relevine, what has happened to you? How have you come to be this way? Relevine's body shakes again. We are transported, not on the wind as we were in the past, but now through rock and stone, the sharp edges of the earth grinding against our skin. We sink down, deeper and deeper below until we reach a chamber at the bottom of the world. I see towering pillars stretching up into the darkness above, and all the world is lit only by the light of a single torch. There, in the center of the chamber, is a massive stone altar, etched with runes in a tongue I immediately know was lost to this darkness ages ago. Above this altar is a stone monolith, suspended in the air, hanging from some point far above us that cannot be seen. It too is inscribed with the same runes, and as I gaze at the stone I feel a cruel energy radiating off of them. Nearby is a man, skeletal and haggard in appearance, with long, thin, gray hair hanging from his face where a beard might have been. His eyes are sunken, his pupils pinpricks of light reflecting in the darkness. In his outstretched hands he holds a book, older even than he is, with pages torn and filthy, and ink so fragile and ancient it seems to disappear as the flames flicker nearby. He speaks as he reads, and his voice is low and horrible. On the altar is a nightmare clouded by smoke and fire. Blood pours down from the edge of the altar and covers the floor, and I hear a scream without beginning or end emanating from within the shuddering mass. It is inhuman, something fully not of this world. It is the primal terror I am feeling, and I want nothing more in this moment than to run, flee, tear loose from my shackles of my body, and depart to a different place, and be free from this unknowable, unspeakable horror. But I am bound here, watching this wretched man read from his book, while this monstrosity on the altar shrieks and writhes and pulls against invisible chains. What is this wickedness? I hear Ogier shouting over the din. And then I notice. The blood seeping from the scars over Relevine's breast is the same black miasma as what pours from over the top of the altar. What are you showing us? Relevine does not move, their eyes transfixed on the scene. Blood gushes from the wounds on their chest and their groin and their body shakes. Below us, the Hierophant raises the tome high above his head, his voice rising in a wretched crescendo that breaks over the wailing of the unseen wraith upon the slab. There is a moment where, as if by a strong wind, the smoke is blown away, and I can see it clearly. Something that betrayed all sense of reason. An idea superimposed over the form of a man, something wearing the human form to commune with them, but that had no supposition about their distinctions. This thing, 
this wretched mass of grasping arms and eyes circling around a bleeding red maw, was held as if in stasis, suspended in its own toxic runoff if for but a moment, before there is a crack from somewhere far above us and the great stone monolith drops onto the altar. The creature screams. There is the sound of meat and magic and hot viscera, and then silence. The single torch goes still. The hierophant is quiet. We linger in this place. After some time, I hear the echo of Relevine speaking, as if from far away. This is my divine ancestor, they say. I can feel a dread in their voice that weighs on me like a grim blanket. This is the root from which the proud Deva did grow. Everything that we were, all of our great works and accomplishments, came from this miserable creature. They sigh. This is the Lord of Memory. In the moment his soul was stripped from his body, and my forefather, the old King Moros, entombed the latter here, deep beneath this citadel. Where his spirit went, I do not know, but this festering thing has been here ever since. I learned of it when I took my place on Maladraug's throne, and was warned even then to never disturb it. The enchantments placed here are old and sacred. They cannot be remade. Relevine raises their hands, and we see now that they are blackened and scarred. The rotten body of the king in red is leeching its poison into me, my friends. It is a mindless thing, fully consumed by hate. As we have dreamed these many dreams of the sleeping Deva, the Lord of Memory's corpse has become restless, and even now it pushes against the barriers created to seal it here. I tell you now, these walls will fall in time. I have not enough strength left within me to seal this thing away again, and should it become free from its lonely place of rest, not only will this sacred archive be lost to us forever, but another horror of the ancient world will come upon you. No power remains in this world that can contest a true god, even one who has died. They look towards the darkness, and I see a terrible sadness pass over them. There was one whom I dearly loved, who in a moment of great peril was able to calm this great malice for a time. I was not able to save her, and the effort of what she tried to do caused her memory to be washed into nothingness. I have dreamt often of her, and I have long desired to see her again. But against the dread hatred that slumbers below us, she was a moth before a torch. Then they smile. For an instant I see something like peace pass over them. But Providence has blessed us with another who may do this thing. You, my dear Ogier, were once called the greatest sorcerer of your time. Your form has diminished, but there remains a strength in you, a strength to shame even the great deeds of your masters. 
I look to Ogier, but his eyes do not meet mine. His heart is elsewhere. I can feel it. I do not know the way, he says. There is a rush of wind, and we are back at Relevine's throne. They are unmoving. You will know it. Their voice is very distant now, muffled and soft. Find your light, child of Asem, and you will find your way through the darkness of the Scarlet King's tomb. And then I am awake. Seems like the happy little history lessons have come to an end. From the sound of it, the rotten body of the Scarlet King is entombed somewhere in this complex, so a seven-man MTF team was sent down on an exploratory mission. Before they depart, Javert signs to them that much of the blood below has sat idle for a long time, and it may change what they see if they are near it, but they are only illusions. Still, they should stay as far from it as they can. He then tells them to be guided and protected by the grace of their golden sun. The team passes through an arched doorway and into a rectangular cutout in a stone wall. One of the team remarks that they have three gunners on this exploratory mission, and they weren't prepped on any potential hazards. So, what are they looking at here? The team lead says that with any luck, they're not looking at anything, but it helps to be careful. The member asks if this is like Duck Pond careful or like that mall with the deer in it careful. The leader says that as far as she understands it, there shouldn't be anything alive down there. The member raises a question at her using the word shouldn't, but ultimately she says that they have no way of knowing, and it's just better to be careful. Another asks if they're looking for anything specific, and one of the survey members says that the sleeping person up there thinks that there's probably a vertical access shaft about 500 meters down from where they are now. They used it to bring water up from underground, back when this place wasn't all underground. It might still be full of water, but as long as it's not full of blood, they can use it to get access to the lower levels, underneath all of the blood. Someone else on the team remarks that there's nothing more in life than they want than to squeeze through a tunnel underneath a skyscraper full of blood. The team gets the clear to begin descending, and they pass into a dark stone hallway. Moving down the hallway away from the throne chamber, they pass by several other blocked stone doorways with text inscribed on them. They continue forward for another three minutes before reaching another archway, the frame of which is blocked by half of a stone slab, the other half appearing to have broken off and is now missing. One of the team navigates around the remaining half and onto a platform on the other side turning away from the hallway and gazing down at a large, spiraling stone staircase centered around a deep pit. He aims his camera down into the pit, and the light from his flashlight does not reach the bottom. The rest of the team joins him, and they toss a flare down the pit, which takes several seconds before it hits the bottom. They descend down the staircase, deeper into the structure, 
passing by several other small openings in the wall leading to long, narrow passages. After several minutes, one of the team stops, remarking that he hears something strange. The rest of the team stops to listen, with some but not all of the others being able to hear it, and the cameras picking up nothing. It sounds like a conversation occurring somewhere in the distance. One of the team says that it doesn't feel like he's hearing it, but rather like you're suddenly remembering it, like a daydream. The team leader doesn't hear anything, mentioning that she has some implants on her brainstem after an accident in 2013. She did some excessive cognitohazard training afterwards when she was relearning how to move properly, while her brain was still malleable. Command tells the leader that they are clear to proceed at her discretion, so she asks the rest of the team what they think. No one has any objections with continuing, so they march on down the staircase. As they reach the bottom, they see the dropped flare lying on the damp stone floor. Across from the bottom of the staircase is a large entryway in the stone wall, leading down another hallway. One of the team produces a small drone from his bag, setting its parameters and letting it fly down the hallway. As they wait for the drone to return, the video and audio feed momentarily cuts out back at base, returning three seconds later. The team lead says that they felt some rumbling down here, from somewhere underneath them, maybe seismic activity. It didn't feel like seismic activity, however, and the rest of the team says that they can hear people talking again, louder now. There's a woman and a younger girl, possibly her daughter, but they can't make out what they're saying. They seem to be speaking a language none of them have heard before, but they can also decipher some sort of meaning from the conversation. The mother is trying to reassure her daughter, who is nervous. She's asking her daughter to do something, and it's making the daughter anxious. The drone then returns, reporting that there's a primary hallway here that extends around the side of whatever the larger structure of this place is, in a kind of semicircle. There are also a bunch of balcony-type structures coming off the hallway, as this section would have once been above ground. This area would have been some kind of promenade that would have looked out, but all of these balconies are collapsed now. There are some more inward-facing doorways that point in the direction of the center of the tower, and at the very end of this hallway is another collapsed door next to a metal fountain. The drone operator then says that the mother is telling her daughter to get into bed, and the daughter doesn't want to because it's not bedtime, and everyone else is going to sleep and not waking up. He can remember hearing this conversation when it was spoken, although he has no clue why he's able to say that. He remembers being in the room when this conversation happened, as clearly as he remembers what he had for breakfast this morning. There was a woman with her daughter, and they were some of the last ones there. She wanted her daughter to go to sleep because she didn't want her to be forgotten. Interpreting this as meaning that they're getting close to their destination, they continue on. As they pass by one of the collapsed doorways out to a balcony, they stop again, remembering that someone once stood here and looked out, 
seen something rising up over the mountains. It was a wall of water, and he felt fear at first, knowing that he didn't have time and nothing would protect him from what was coming. But then he laughed and felt something like serenity in a moment of peace. He prayed, felt in his soul that his prayer was answered, and then he was obliterated by the impact. His blood ran down through the stones, what little remained of it, and it ran down into something below them. The people that died here are all around them, in a sense, killed but not gone. The team continues on to the collapsed doorway at the end of the hall, next to the metal fountain. Deducing that this is their next descent point, they clear the doorway. Once opened, they see behind it is what appears to have been the beginning of a large reservoir, although the back wall has collapsed and fallen away. Beyond where the back wall of the shaft had been is a vast chamber, the far side of which the team's lights do not reach. Many large, intricately detailed stone pillars rise up from out of the darkness below to support a ceiling somewhere above them. From their position, they can see a landing just below, dotted with rows of stone slabs, and the sound of fluid moving somewhere nearby is clearly audible. They begin preparing their descent harnesses to make their way down to that landing, and the team leader starts to report back to command about their progress when their audio and video feed cut out. There is a noticeable, significant rumbling from below the command station, and several attempts are made to get in contact with the team over the course of the next 20 minutes. A secondary retrieval team is prepped after 10 minutes, but after 22 minutes, command receives an uplink from one of the team members' comms. They're still not getting video, but the team member, Brave, says that there was a rumbling and then the floor underneath them went out. They fell pretty far, with only a couple of them in their harnesses. They managed to catch a couple other members, one is still up top, but two of them, including the leader, fell further down, one of them with a broken leg. It's dark in here, but they seem to be on some sort of platform and there's other platforms all around the central shaft. Brave then manages to get his video back online, showing four of the team members standing on a wide stone platform, with long rows of flat stone slabs running out in all directions around them. Command tells Brave to stay where they're at, as they're sending in an extraction team. While waiting, Brave approaches one of the stone slabs, showing a dark sheet draped over a figure laying on the slab. They deduce that they're in a mausoleum, as the slabs all have a groove in them that runs towards the floor, and the ground is sloped a bit towards the center. They pull the sheet back, revealing a human skeleton underneath, parts of which have been reduced to dust. They approach another slab, smaller than the others, with a sheet draped over a diminutive figure laying on the slab. They mention that they can hear the end of the conversation now, between the mother and the daughter, clear as day. The mother tells the daughter to lay down, as it's time for all of them to sleep. 
The daughter is afraid, but the mother assures her that it's okay to be afraid, and she is too, but they'll sleep here together and dream of each other often. They'll be together in the dark, and they must be strong for each other. The daughter asks if it will hurt, to which the mother responds, it will only for a moment, and then they'll be together. The daughter doesn't want to go without her mother, however, but the mother says that it will only be for a moment, and her nana will be there waiting for her. The mother then lays her daughter down here and draws a long knife. Her hand trembles, as even though this is not the first time she has performed this ritual, it is the hardest. She meets her daughter's fearful eyes with her own to reassure her one more time and slides the knife across her daughter's neck and down her arms. The girl does not struggle for long, and then her body goes cold. The blood runs down through the crack in the stone, into the basin below, and then down the floor, across the room, mixing with the rest, until it falls away into the darkness beyond the wall. The mother stands, her heart beating fast, as she hears a roar growing outside. She knows the end has come, but something catches her attention, her focus drawn to it all at once. Her hair stands on end as something animalistic inside of her cautions her. Something else has felt the roar of the water as well, something deep below that was never meant to wake. She moves for the door, pausing only to look at her daughter, and then once towards the sky. She grips the knife in her fist and says, My lord daughter, my lord son, be our sacred deliverance, be our quiet rest, be our living memory. She goes to the door and opens it, but their memory of the events are interrupted by the sudden arrival of the team leader and the injured team member. The team leader says that they're going to want to see this, leading them through the arched doorway into the chamber beyond. There is only a single source of light dimly illuminating the room, a colossal cylinder of blood roughly 180 meters in diameter, glowing and shifting. It hangs in the air suspended by some invisible force with rings of black stone set around it every hundred or so meters up and down. Command sees the video feed and asks the team leader if she's alright. She's fine, but the injured member needs extraction, and they need to get a forward team down here. She then points along the side of the massive room they're in, showing a long, wide staircase extending down past them into the darkness below. With that, the team is successfully extracted, and the exploratory mission is over. On another call with Lancaster, Malthus explains that engineering teams have set up a freight elevator inside of the central shaft of the tower. It's big enough for Ogier, a strike team, and their thaumaturgical research team to go down, with Dr. Fulweiler volunteering to run operations on the ground. 
The bottom of the main shaft is about seven and a half kilometers below ground, so they're anticipating the descent to take about an hour and a half. They also believe there to be a further area below the bottom where SCP-6765-E is located. They'll be planting relays the whole way down to keep their line of communications up, and they're going to have a zero exposure policy in place throughout, so at the first sign of trouble, they'll pull the e-brake and go back up. Lancaster asks if they've heard anything else from Relevine about what they're going to find down there, but there's been no such luck. Relevine has gone completely silent, but Ogier assures them that he's still alive, but only just. Whatever influence this entity down below has over Relevine, it's getting worse, so they can't wait around hoping it's going to get better. Thus begins Operation Renewal, with the goal being to mitigate a hostile thaumaturgical influence deep below the complex in order to continue the ongoing success of the 6765 mission. Relevine believes that Ogier, once a renowned occultist and thaumaturgist, is capable of mitigating this influence. As for the influence, it's described by Relevine as the rotting corpse of the Lord of Memory. The Lord of Memory, also called the King in Red, is believed to have been a precursor entity to the Scarlet King. During an event in the distant past, the metaphysical aspect of the Lord of Memory was separated from its physical body, and the two became fully disconnected. In order to distinguish between these two related but clearly delineated entities, it is currently understood that the metaphysical aspect is what the Foundation identifies as the Scarlet King, while the previously unknown physical aspect is the King in Red. Despite apparently being a rotting corpse, the King in Red is still capable of thaumaturgical influence. We're then given a transcript of an interview between an agent and a researcher with the researcher asking him about the lead-up to the event. The agent says that the atmosphere changed, as this isn't a particularly light-hearted assignment in general, but they've been able to keep things fairly cheery in the past, at least above ground. Once the new operation was announced, however, the mood changed almost overnight. They kept feeling these earthquakes from somewhere way below them, and there was this weird apprehension that settled in. The agent suspects that this mood shift came from the dreamer agents. They used to go on their little seances, and then they'd come back with these wild stories of legends and heroes from long ago. Then, over the course of a week or two, they went quiet. There weren't any fantastical tales anymore, no descriptions of ancient creatures or warriors. They would go to sleep, and when they'd wake up, they'd look empty, like they were feeling what everyone else was feeling. Additionally, the agent says that they were working on the elevator then too, so everyone who went down into the tower below was exposed to the reservoir. The agent says that you'd think the eeriest part about it would be that it was a floating blood thing, but being down there next to it... It was like they were watching you. 
Everyone who had ever bled into that thing was hanging there in the air, watching you fasten a railing or lay down conduit. It felt like they were desecrating a cemetery, but there wasn't any malice about it. He thinks that they probably knew that thing was down there, and they probably had bigger concerns than a few upturned graves. We're next given a recorded conversation between Agent Evelyn Ivy and Ogier. She asks him what's wrong, and although he tries to pretend there's nothing wrong, she says that she's his friend, and they've spent months together inside of his memories. Ogier says that she is very kind, kinder perhaps than he deserves. In truth, he is afraid. His dreams of late have been grim, and the specter below them grows ever more bold, each day its slumber becoming lighter. He then exclaims for her to look at him and what he's become. He is cursed, defiled, broken, and desecrated. He has been cast out from Apollyon's citadel and left to wander and rot in the wastes and yet he's meant to rebuild Moros' prison. In his youth, he performed miracles and could bend Asem's lingering light as he desired. But how could this wretched form do such things? He is laid in this room, unmoving but to cross it to the stairs and then back for an age of the earth. In all that time, he has learned and rested but it hasn't made him any less of this thing that he has become. When he was young, he basked in the glory of the young earth, and he could move mountains, but those were the actions of Saint Ogier, the blessed disciple of Asem's son. Those were the actions of the Lord's royal pontifex. He has wasted away into nothing, a shell of the being he was, glorious and radiant. He says this form is a weight he carries on him, but then corrects himself to say that it is a weight that he has become. It was once like a parasite, but time has passed. Now he is this thing, a lumbering, cruel mockery. This is a just punishment for their sins, but he asks if this thing can accomplish the task laid out before him. Relevine once told him that throughout the many collected lives of the Deva, one constant always gave him heart, the knowledge that there were always those who would rise to resist darkness, who would find within them a hidden valor that would lead them, if not to victory, then to some kind of honor. But honor, dignity, valor... These were the attributes of greater men, of men who were given their time in the sun. What is Saint Ogier but a legend lost to time? This demon is not Saint Ogier. It is flesh and bone and little else. The lingering light faded long ago, as did he, and he apologizes if he cannot summon the strength to do this thing. We're next given another transcript of an interview between an agent and a researcher about the descent down into the tower shaft. 
The agent says that it was treacherous, to say the least. They had them tied down pretty good, but the entire place was shaking every few minutes, with stuff falling down from the ceiling. All the while, they had to look at that big glowing tube of blood next to them, which would mess with their memories. The agent was sitting there, and he gets a passing thought where he remembers being a kid and this guy was there, who looked way out of place. The guy was trying to communicate something to him, but he didn't understand what he said. The agent knows that this guy couldn't have possibly existed back then, and he knows that he didn't just show up one day in Queens and start talking crazy, but he remembers it distinctly. Other agents mentioned similar things. Sometimes they'd be watching you, like you remember seeing them out of the corner of your eye once, but sometimes they'd do this sort of gesture. Ogier said it was a sign of encouragement, and he doesn't know if that's true, but the other agents bought it for sure. Everyone was doing this weird little gesture to each other, but if it was supposed to be a sign of encouragement, Ogier wasn't buying it. The agent says that he didn't look well, as every so often he'd look over to him and see his eyes closed and he'd be moving his mouth real softly. He thinks that Ogier was praying, and he guesses that that's pretty telling considering what happened. All of them were goofing around, ignoring obvious warnings about what was coming, and this one guy trying to find a god who would listen to him. As for what exactly happened... Director Lancaster herself interviews the team leader of the Applied Task Force sent down there about precisely that. The agent says that they reached the bottom after about two hours of travel. The column of blood extended all the way to the bottom, but there was a change in it as it got nearer to the end. He doesn't know how else to describe it except to say that it felt grim. Up near the top, it was glowing bright red, and there were just these streaks of black and purple running through it, but at the bottom, it was almost all black. They stopped hearing those voices, too, the ones everyone has been talking about. It got so dark down there, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face without a flashlight. The only light they didn't bring with them was the faintest red glow from way up above, but it wasn't worth much. The bottom of the tower opens up into an enormous cavern, and all around the outside of it are these massive stone pillars, big around as a house, that stretch up from the cavern floor to arch at the bottom of the tower structure. They thought there had maybe been floor there at one point, and falling debris had knocked it all away, because there was plenty of that too. Old columns, big pieces of stone... Bones, residue from the tower falling apart over the last however many years. They stopped, and after they left the elevator, they set up their forward camp. It wasn't too long until two agents found the way down. Way in the corner of the cavern was a little building that looked like a small chapel made out of an oily black stone. The agent says that being near that place was horrible. That building, and everything underneath it, felt wrong. You got to feeling sick, but not sick to your stomach, but rather like your whole body was trying to reject whatever it was in the air. 
It soaked into your clothes, into your skin. The agent burned his jacket after they came back up, as he just couldn't stand to look at it. Inside of the chapel was a few rows of stone benches, and then a staircase at the back that led down below. The agent says that there was a horrible stench here as well, even after they put on breathing gear. The stairway down wound around a lot, and as they got deeper, the lights they were carrying started to get darker too. They weren't broken, they just didn't produce as much light. Some of the other agents got anxious and had to turn back. There were a few who just stopped in the stairwell and wouldn't move, sitting in the dark for hours until the others had come back up. By the time they got to the bottom, there were only a few of them left, maybe twenty. It was hardest on Ogier, who basically had to drag himself the whole way down the stairs. He didn't get a good look at his face, but he was clearly struggling. They all were, as it was a horribly oppressive place to be. The bottom of the stairway opened up into another cave, maybe the biggest he's seen in his life. By that point, their lights were almost out, but it didn't matter, as the cavern was lit from the center, way at the bottom. The cave was the tomb with a stone monolith stretching up into the blackness above them. It was bigger than a skyscraper, and it was solid rock, but at the bottom you could see where it was sitting on another stone platform. That thing was propping it up, just a bit, but the agent says that the light that came out of that place was one of those things that the eyes of men just weren't designed to look at. We're then provided with a transcript of their camera feed as they enter into the tomb. Light from their shoulder-mounted flashlight is significantly reduced, and they keep an arm on the agent in front of them as they continue forward. Ahead of them, the hallway becomes slightly more illuminated by a dull red light from somewhere up ahead. After a short time, the task force emerges onto a rocky ledge overlooking a deep cavern. As they step out onto the ledge, there is a loud, low rumble that emanates from the center of the room. The source of the seismic activity they've been feeling is now evident. A single massive monolith of stone rising up from a platform at the center of a shallow pool near the cavern's floor. As the earth shakes, the monolith is seen rising upwards slightly. An intense red light shines from the narrow space between the monolith and the platform over which it hangs. Ogier speaks quietly in an antediluvian tongue, explaining that it is a prayer, that perhaps even in a place so dark as this, a light may still shine on them, if only for a moment. In an interview with another team leader of the task force, she says that it took no small effort to make it down to the bottom of the stairwell, as they could feel the life draining out of them. Maybe two dozen of them got down there, along with Ogier and Javert. They saw a person, or perhaps more like the idea of a person, maybe a woman, hanging there in the air in front of this huge stone thing. 
She was doing some kind of magic, as they could see these symbols around her hands and around her head, but they were so dim that they could barely make them out. As they came over the lip of the platform, this person sort of craned her neck a little, like she was acknowledging that they were there. And then everything happened all at once. The huge stone monolith shot up maybe a meter or two, and this energy just started pouring out of the space underneath it. The leader says that if you look at her video footage, if it managed to survive, she was watching this woman when it happened, and she was just suddenly atomized and turned to dust. The whole place was shaking, stones falling from the ceiling, and there was this sound, something almost indescribable, like an animal noise you might hear at night, far away and lonesome or hurt, and it was getting louder. Blood started coming over the edge of the platform, running over their shoes, and it was coming from up underneath the stone pillar like a flood. She remembers hearing one other agent shouting, and another yelling that he could see something before he got pulled in underneath it, into that horrible red thing. She's relieved that it's over, and she survived, but what really gets her is knowing that they saw this old dead thing here, and there has to be more like it. They found that one in South America, and then this one. So how many other holes are there in the earth full of things like this? They were lucky this time, as they got there in the nick of time, but what happens when they miss one? She's assured by the researcher that this is why Paragon exists, but she counters that it wasn't Paragon that saved their lives down there. We're next given an automated bulletin sent out from one of the Foundation's AI systems as an emergency warning. There has been anomalous extraspatial activity detected at SCP-6765, with multiple personnel reporting extreme cognitohazardous activity. Multiple personnel are also reported missing. All personnel stationed at other sites inside of the complex are to remain at their stations until further notice, and all emergency warnings at Paragon sites are Red Omega priority. In the aftermath, Lancaster conducts an interview with Fullweiler, where she starts by saying that she's happy he's alright. They're calling what happened the Heritage Event which started the moment the Davite woman in the tomb was destroyed. Whatever enchantment she had been maintaining was already extremely weak, and in a moment of hesitation, she was finally overpowered and annihilated. They believe that the monolith was acting as some kind of extraplanar prison for the king in red. They never got a chance to inspect the platform itself, but some of the video shows what looks like a runic circle carved into the stone. It's possible, then, that Moros' intention was to create his extraplanar gate, push the king in red through to the other side, and then just drop a giant stone on top of the gate to keep him in. There were other glyphs on the exterior of the monolith, so it's not quite as simple as that, but he gets the impression that his plan was just to put a big rock in the way. 
the last seal of whatever the woman had put in place failed, and so they caught the full brunt of this coming through all at once. A few of their guys were too close, so they got pulled into whatever was on the other side. Fullweiler never got a good look at this thing as it was climbing out from the platform, but a couple of others did. They still haven't found the words to describe it, so he compares it to something Lovecraftian, a truly unspeakable horror. While this thing was climbing out, that's when the shift happened, and they were all suddenly like inside of a memory. He honestly can't say if they were dreaming or not, although the AI says that the site disappeared during the heritage event. Even after they got back, he thought they had just been asleep together, like they'd all passed out. It wasn't until he heard that they'd captured live video of it that he realized what had happened. It happened sort of all at once, as there was a flash of red light, and they suddenly found themselves in a field with the tower behind them. In the far distance, over the mountains, they could see smoke and lightning, and there was this constant dull roar. Then suddenly the tower behind them started to shake, and they could hear screaming, millions of voices, all at once, in utter agony. And then the side of the tower was ripped open, as if someone had taken a giant zipper and run it down the front. That massive column of blood in the reservoir just slowly floated out, still all together, and that's where the screaming was coming from. Another voice then appeared, drowning out the screams. It was inhuman, unearthly, and the sound of it made him want to drop to the ground and scream himself. It came over the mountains slowly, but it didn't move or articulate. It was just like a mannequin floating over the mountains. It was this horrible, enormous red thing with this glowing, spinning sigil behind it, and he doesn't know if it was chanting or singing, but he says that when this is all said and done, he might consider amnestics, just so he never has to have a passing thought about that voice ever again. The pillar of blood was floating towards it, and that's when Ogier made his first move. He just sort of raised his human hand and started speaking, and this sort of dim, reflective barrier appeared in the air in front of the column of blood. You could just tell from looking at it that it was paper thin, and sure enough, this huge thing's head jerked around to look at Ogier, and the barrier blew away like it was sand. Ogier kind of came apart then, sort of slumped over, and Javert and Agent Ivy were both there with him, but he looked horrible. Lancaster then asks if their agents exchanged fire, but this only causes Fullweiler to laugh, although he then apologizes, saying that it's not really funny, except maybe in a sort of grim way. Yes, they shot bullets at it, but this thing apparently removed their memory of how to operate firearms. Fifteen trained agents with guns and mortars and all their equipment, and all it took was a look, and they had no idea what they were doing. They're still working on relearning their abilities, 
with Javert helping to get some of it back, but for a few of them, that memory block is just there, permanently. The King in Red just took their memories. Lancaster asks then how they possibly made it out, and Fullweiler says that they were ruined. He knew in his heart that they were dead. He was sitting there next to another researcher, hoping that it wouldn't hurt, and then it happened. Lancaster asks what happened, to which Fullweiler asks if she's watched the video. She says that she hasn't, so he responds that she really should watch the video. The video shows the king in red visible in the background. The ground beneath its feet smokes and blackens, and the sky is blood red. In the near foreground, the colossal column of blood hangs in the air. The video shows one of the team leads shouting and pointing his rifle, but the words are not audible, with the audio consisting of only a single long drone throughout. The sound of screaming begins to rise over the drone, and the king in red lifts its arms. With a single swift motion, it tears open its own chest, revealing a completely black interior. It extends its right arm towards the pillar of blood, and there's a flash of white light as all sounds are silenced in an instant. There is another flash of white light, and then another. The king in red visibly recoils as the video recording is fully obscured by intense light. After a moment, the light fades. Ogier is then seen hanging in the air in front of the king in red. His body has been radically altered, now easily 30 meters in height. The creature's flesh is no longer mottled red and gray, but is instead stark white and glowing with brilliant golden light. The six arms of the demon's body are extended out on either side of it, and its legs and feet are extended and pointing towards the ground. The head of the demonic body no longer hangs limp, but is raised. Six long golden horns extend out from the demon's forehead and wrap backwards over its skull, as if it were wearing a helmet. From a distance, the form of a man is barely visible standing on the shoulder of the demon. The king in red then becomes animated, lunging towards Ogier. Dark red and black shapes come up from the earth around its feet, but they are buffeted away by a pulsing aura emanating from within Ogier. The king in red shrieks, and it runs across the wide plain towards Ogier. As it nears, the sound is stripped away again. The voice of Ogier then cuts through the silence, saying, Return, wretched incarnation. Unfit now to walk Asem's golden streets. Return to the dark, where in ages past you were resigned, and remain there until the undoing of the earth. I am Ogier, wielder of Asem's golden sun, before which you are little more than a passing shadow. Go now willingly, or be undone. Despite this, the King in Red continues to close the distance, so Ogier's arms move in unison, 
each of the three left arms bending at their elbows until they come together in a wide curve. The three arms on the right reach out over the left, and in them appears three long golden arrows. The three right arms pull the arrows back across the bow created by the left, and with a sound like a rush of wind, releases them. The three arrows impact the king in red, and there is a flash of light and a loud bang. Both the arrows and the king are pushed backwards through the mountain. Ogier disappears, and then reappears seconds later in front of the large crater on the mountainside. Its arms extend outwards again, tracing a glowing white circle in the sky as they do. Behind the glowing circle, the king is seen writhing. There is a final flash of white light, and the plains and mountains disappear. There is nothing but blackness for a moment, and then suddenly the platform within the cavern beneath SCP-6765 becomes visible again. Red light pulses and blood sprays out from underneath the monolith, and an animalistic roar is heard from below. Ogier appears in front of the stone suddenly, and grasping the right and left sides of the monolith, he slams it down on top of the platform. As this happens, the video recording cuts off suddenly. Finally, we're provided a transcript from a call between Lancaster and O5-1. He asks her if the Black Moon howls, a common code phrase, to which she responds, Before the waters crested the high hills in old Noah's time. He says that it's good to hear from her, as he's been reviewing her project notes and the footage, and it's a lot to take in. He asks if the situation at 6765 has been stabilized, which she believes has. They were able to make their first contact with Relevine since before the Heritage event. It's muted, but the Dreamer is still dreaming in there, so they weren't too late. Ogier is still down below, spending most of his time now working on the circles around that stone pillar. He doesn't need to eat or sleep, and seems content to just make sure the wards he's placing down there will hold as long as the originals did, at least. 051 asks if the demon part of Ogier has shown any kind of autonomy since the Heritage event, where they became separated. Lancaster says that no, it hasn't, as the demon is just an extension of Ogier, and they're two parts of the same unit. Just because Ogier has his legs back doesn't mean their will is separated now. Sometimes you can almost catch the demon mimicking Ogier's actions, like it's trying to follow along. It's like the commands are coming from the same place, but one of the bodies is receiving them just a little more slowly than the other. Thankfully, it's not as big anymore as it was in there for a bit, otherwise they'd have no way of trying to get it out of the cavern. 051 says that he's very impressed with her and her people, and a whole lot of people owe them their lives. Lancaster says that they have a good team, with Malthus never missing details, and Fullweiler never seeming to tire. He's been working almost non-stop the last few weeks just doing data entry, writing down accounts they've taken from the archive. 
She then says that 051's message indicated that there was something else he wanted to talk about. 051 says that just before Ogier made his dramatic reawakening, there was a disturbance noted at another anomalous location they keep track of. This location is very much the kind of place where any disturbance at all is unanticipated. Something stirred that should not have stirred, and he believes it may be connected to the work they've been doing. If nothing else, he'd like her to start putting together another team to take a look into it. She says that they'd be happy to, and asks where this location is exactly. In response, he asks her if she's ever heard of the Department of Abnormalities. Alright, there's a lot to go over here. Let's start with SCP-6765 itself, the tower that was once the tallest spire of the vein of Maladraug. Maladraug was a Davite city-state, founded by the Mad King Moros. Deva was a secretive, often violent civilization ruled by a matriarchy. They had notable interests in two things, anomalous botany and blood magic. It's this second aspect that's much more important to 6765. Maladraug was a bit of a unique oddity among Davite city-states, as rather than a matriarchy, they enforced a strict patriarchy, regardless of the ruler's birth sex. Relevine, the sorcerer king, had originally been born as Relea, for example. One of the other things that the Davites were notable for were being strict record keepers, a trait that carried on in a unique way in the vein of Maladraug. Rather than simply writing things down, they used a combination of mechanical engineering and thaumaturgy to create the throne of Maladraug, capable of recording memories in blood. As it turns out, their association with blood, as well as memories, is not random happenstance, but rather is due to their connection with the Scarlet King, also known as the King of Blood. Relevine says that the Scarlet King is the root from which the Deva grew, and everything that they were, and everything that they did, came from it. At some point in the ancient past, however, something happened to the Scarlet King that caused its physical body to die, and its spirit to become separated. That being said, it's not dead in the strictest sense of the word, as it continues to poison Relevine with mindless hate every time that he utilizes the throne to relive someone's memories. When the Scarlet King's body and spirit were separated, the Mad King Moros entombed its body underneath the Holy Tower, utilizing magical enchantments and a big rock. The Davite woman down there was apparently someone Relevine dearly loved, and she had been able to calm the restless corpse for some time. When the Foundation stumbled into the tomb, however, she became momentarily distracted, and the power of the Scarlet King's corpse instantly annihilated her as it started to become free. That brings us to Ogier. Ogier was one of the four knights of the Sky Kings, along with Hector, Lahire, and Lancelot. 
The Hyer was known as a great swordsman, as well as being promiscuous. Lancelot was known as a fearsome warlord and tactician. Hector was known as being a stalwart defender of the realm and personal shield to the king, while Ogier was known as a master occultist and thaumaturgist. He had a keen mastery over the dying light of a sem which lingered in the lands in those days, lending him prowess as a great sorcerer, which put him at odds with the imperial cult who promoted only the innate divinity of the Sky Kings themselves, not of a sem from ages past. Things went wrong for the Four Knights, along with the Sky Kings and all of Old Europe, when a captured fairy princess placed a curse on them after the Sky King Saurus VIII ravaged their civilization. During the following 25 years or so, in which time the princess was tortured and entombed, many calamities fell on Apollyanna, including flooding, famine, and pestilence. Eventually, this culminated with the four great knights being transformed into primeval demons, and the three great profanities bringing an end to the Sky Kings and the current reign of humanity. The Hire was driven from the kingdom after being branded with an arcane symbol, eventually coming to reside in present-day Alabama, where he is now designated as SCP-2254. Lancelot went on a killing spree across the countryside as he fled, eventually coming to Autopapadopolis, the ancient city of Assem. Here, he would have destroyed the entire city if not for the efforts of a dragon, a sea lord, and the Deva sorcerer, Relevine, who managed to slay Lancelot. Hector had been cast out by Saurus IX due to his abominable form, and was ordered to head back across the sea in order to destroy the heart of the Fae Curse. This led him to SCP-6666, Titania, a dead fairy god worshipped by the Children of the Night. Hector had torn open a hole into the side of Titania and demanded a wish from her, that she pour out a poisonous gas for eternity in order to keep the Children of the Night from awakening and returning en masse. The Foundation almost messed this situation up, but Hector continues to remain there to ensure that the Children don't return. Finally, Ogier fled Apollyanna in the midst of his transformation, eventually coming to Maladraug, where Relevine took him into the tower. Here, he performed some blood magic to halt the transformation, although this apparently left Relevine weaker than before. Destruction would soon come to Maladraug as well, however, along with the rest of the world, when a great flood swept the earth. The flood was caused by a human sorcerer named Noah, who managed to escape from his Children of the Night captors and ushered forth a flood that covered the planet for a hundred years, ending the antediluvian era. The people of Maladraug, however, fled to the tower, as it was high ground, and sealed themselves inside of it. Realizing that they'll never survive in there for long enough for the waters to recede, they decided instead to preserve their knowledge and experiences for future wisdom. They sacrificed themselves, pouring all of their blood into the great reservoir underneath the tower, leaving only Relevine and Ogier behind. Eventually, one of the Children of the Night ended up making his way to the tower, taking the name Javert and becoming the caretaker of both Ogier 
and Relevine. That brings us to the present day, where the Foundation arrived and began utilizing Javert's ability to communicate through dreams in order to speak to Relevine, asleep on the throne. Relevine, with the aid of the machine, was able to bring forth the memories of any Davite citizen and show them through Javert to the Foundation. This meant that the Foundation and their Department of Antediluvian Research, once forced to mostly pick through scraps of history that they managed to find about the era, now got access to first-hand accounts from people living during that time. The problem was that all of this activity regarding both blood and memories caused the rotting corpse of the Scarlet King, the Lord of Memories and King of Blood, to stir and rage in its tomb. This created a sort of pressure on Relevine, and left unchecked, not only would Relevine and the throne be rendered unusable, but far worse things could have occurred. The foundation went down, underneath the tower, to the tomb itself. What seems to have occurred here is that Ogier and all of the agents were brought into a memory featuring the Scarlet King although there seems to have been an actual physical component to the dream, as their cameras captured footage of it. Here, the Scarlet King attempted to pull all the blood in the reservoir into itself, which would have likely greatly empowered it, but was stopped by Ogier. Ogier tried to use his own thaumaturgy to prevent this, but failed, so instead resorted to fully unleashing his demon side, managing to separate it from his human side in an unprecedented way. In short, a sort of kaiju battle ensued, although the demon Ogier easily defeated the Scarlet King, or at least his rotting corpse, and then resealed the tomb. Now both the human Ogier and the demon Ogier stand watch to ensure that it doesn't escape again. That brings us to the final addendum to the document, the conversation between Lancaster and 051. I mentioned before that 051 was revealed here to be Calvin Lucian, the protagonist of The Way It Ends, a section of the Ouroboros cycle. In The Way It Ends, Calvin Lucian, a Chaos Insurgency agent, leads a mission to assassinate the entire O5 Council, believing them to be corrupt and causing more damage to reality than they are protecting. In the end, he discovers that the administrator of the Foundation is in fact an entity that represents both the Foundation's goals and their place in the story of the universe. It is an entity that exists to further the original goal of the Foundation, the containment and study of anomalies, regardless of the cost. Calvin decides to take over the job of 051 from the assassinated predecessor in order to remain as a barrier between the administrator and the outside world, and to try to come up with a way of stopping the administrator once and for all. After becoming 051, his former sworn ally within the Chaos Insurgency, Adam Ivanov, became the leader of that group and swore that he would bring an end to both Calvin and the Foundation. This brings us to the addendum at the end of SCP-6666, in which Calvin brings up the SCP-1000 file, 
which covers the Children of the Night. The SCP-1000 file paints a very different picture of the Children of the Night compared to what we've learned through Project Paragon, so he addresses the discrepancies. The SCP-1000 file was originally written by Tilda Moose in 1956, but not only does it predate the first recorded Bigfoot sighting by two years, Tilda Moose wasn't even alive in 1956. We know now that the Children of the Night were by and large a hostile, dangerous species, one that enslaved humans in mass as they require humanity in order to communicate with one another. Calvin asks who do they know would be interested in the Foundation letting the Children of the Night back into society, or in other words, tricking the Foundation into bringing back a hostile species. The answer then is Adam Ivanov, and the Chaos Insurgency. Finally, we have the Department of Abnormalities. I have a whole video about this concept if you're interested, but essentially it's a predecessor to the Foundation, one that contained some very interesting things. Eventually, for whatever reason, the Department became obsolete and it was swept from the record so completely that most people have no idea it ever even existed, and now the Foundation is occasionally rediscovering elements that it contained. The main SCP associated with the Department of Abnormalities is SCP-3790, a structure located in London largely underground. The structure consists of a series of cells on each level, containing a wide variety of anomalies including anomalies from the antediluvian era. One of these is Apollyon's crown, the one once worn by Adam el Assem. But the really interesting part is the seventh level. The elevator mechanism has been modified to no longer access this floor, and no more information about it has been available. This structure has been quiet since its discovery a dead and obsolete storage site that no one knows about and no one cares about, left to sit for eternity. That's why it troubles Calvin so much that Project Paragon's activity at SCP-6765 has caused something to stir at the site, something that should not have stirred. While we have suspected for a while what is contained on the seventh level of SCP-3790, we can now say for certain, it's Adam el Assem himself, still alive to this day. We know this for several reasons, one being that at the end of SCP-6666, Calvin says that they'll have to make a decision soon to go down to the seventh floor and talk to him. We know that Adam el Assem was once apparently contained inside of Titania's prison, SCP-2932 but eventually the cell was opened and found to be empty, with the warden refusing to acknowledge its emptiness or even approach the cell. Finally, Calvin recently went to Seth in the city of Autopapadopoulos and asked him about his father, Adam. He admits to Seth that they know where his father is, and says that there is a man who once called him a friend, but now calls him his enemy. He knows about Assem, and where he is, so they need Seth's help, along with his brothers, Cain and Abel. 
I don't know what's going to happen next in this storyline, but safe to say that it involves Adam el Assem and the continued resurgence of the ancient past into the present. There's a lot to juggle here, between Adam el Assem and the various gods that were around during his time in Autopapadopoulos, the Sky Kings of Europe and their wars, and the primeval demons and the great profanities that are still around today. Needless to say, it's one of, if not the most ambitious storyline in SCP history. And no matter what happens, the journey has been a hell of a ride.